Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading comes to us from Revelation chapter 3, and I'll be reading the first six verses, that's verse 1 through to verse 6. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Othniel, for the reading of the word this morning. Thank you for your birthday wishes as well, Ama. Today is your birthday as well. And I've just discovered that the collection of years is really the collection of blessings. So that's a good way to kind of ease through life, right? So uh, thanks for being a blessing to us, my family. And our church family, it's awesome. And a little baby on the way, not for us, but uh, <laughs> Doug and Selena. Wow, we're so excited for them, and uh, that little baby's going to have great parents. Oh, wow. So we are so privileged to have Doug and Selena as part of our family here. Uh, well, let's, I think we should pray. I think we want to pray, first of all, for Ukraine. And uh, I'm just going to give you a moment of silence to pray, and, and then I'll conclude our time. Father, I know that... Our hearts are really burdened these days for the country of Ukraine. What a horrible tragedy we're witnessing. And Lord, as we open your word this morning, we're also mindful that even right now, there are some in Ukraine who are facing death. It is so hard to comprehend. And we pray that in the midst of your sovereignty, that hearts will be turned to you. May the Ukrainian people themselves find hope and refuge in you today. Grant them courage and comfort as they 
as they wake up this morning to a, a day of uncertainty. Hold back, Lord, we pray, the forces of military power. Hold back the forces of evil, we pray. Lord, you have the power to do that. Give us discernment as nations of the world as to how you would lead us. Give leaders of nations the understanding of what they can do. Oh, Father, we pray for so many families in our own province who have loved ones in Ukraine. And today they're hurting. So fill our words and our actions with hope and love for the strengthening of your people. Lord, for the land of Ukraine today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, in, uh, in my thinking, the word zombie has quite a few different meanings today. Well, let's talk about zombies for a moment. Uh, there, there are loads of movies about zombies, the walking dead and so on. But when I use the word zombie, I don't think of any of those movies. I just simply mean, I better get to bed or I'll be a zombie tomorrow. That's how I interpret it. Or it means a morning rush to Tim Hortons to get some caffeine because I'm starved for caffeine. And, uh, and it means a willingness to be a zombie in the morning for the pleasure of staying up late at night uh, for the purpose of watching the women's hockey team win the gold. Anybody do that? Stayed up late? There's a few. Yeah, awesome. Uh, and don't we have an amazing uh, women's hockey team? But it carries the connotation of uh, moving very slowly and being one who's not really aware of what's happening, kind of tired, looking alive, but really dead. And it seems like the church that we're visiting today has zombies in it. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Well, if some of you are joining us uh, uh, here this morning for the first time or online, uh, we're, we're in a study of walking among the churches, and we're, we're walking among those seven churches in Asia Minor, which is Turkey today, and we're putting a circle around uh, Sardis today. We've been traveling from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamos to Thyatira to Sardis, and after today we have two more to go, and Jesus would have completed the circle. So let me tell you a little bit about the city of Sardis, first of all. Uh, I've never heard this expression before, perhaps you have, as rich as Croesus. I don't, has anybody heard that before? I think it's a British expression, and in the time of Sardis, even before, there was a ridiculously rich king by the name of Croesus, and he was so wealthy that the slogan originated, as rich as Croesus. Today we would say, well, as rich as Bill Gates, or as rich as Bezos. Or, because the very first thing you think of when you think of Bill Gates is money, his wealth. But Croesus got his wealth from a name that you would be familiar with, King Midas. You know, the guy with the Midas touch, the golden touch? He got his wealth from King Midas, who got his wealth from gold deposits in the nearby river that flowed through Sardis. And they would pan for gold, and there was gold in the river. 
So this rich leader, Croesus, was responsible uh, because he had tons of money. He was responsible for building a very beautiful city, the city of Sardis, and he built it first class, always just top notch. But you know Turkey, they have a lot of earthquakes. And in A.D. 17, a big one rocked the city of Sardis and surrounding area and completely destroyed the city. And Tiberius, the Roman emperor, rebuilt the city, but not like it used to be, not like the gem that it used to be. Uh, So Sardis regained its prosperity, but it was never the same again. Now, Sardis doesn't exist today, uh, only ruins. There's a town there. I think maybe more like there's a few houses there today if you've traveled through that area. It's not, it didn't get rebuilt uh, after the, the third or fourth century. There's a photo of the temple of Artemis uh, in Sardis. Now, we learned about that large temple uh, in Ephesus, but there's also a temple that existed in Sardis. And then in the next picture, or in the same picture, you can see in the background this huge mountain, a fortress. And in the early days of the church, at the, uh, the people lived on the Acropolis. Oh, I'm supposed to tell you as well that there's a quiz coming in a little while. So you better pay attention to some of this so you'll get the... And uh, now I just thought of it, Mark. The prizes could be that we all have donuts. Because yeah, we didn't get any donuts like that, Jen or Candy. So. So, so in the early days, the city was built right on the Acropolis, where they could early, easily defend themselves. The next picture is the synagogue, which was in Sardis. And many Jewish people lived there due to commerce. Sardis was located on the intersection of five highways. And when you build a church today, everybody says, location, location, location. (laughs) Get the right location so people can see your church and they can get to your church. Well, Sardis was built and located in a strategic place, and these trade routes were humming with business. And they caught the traffic uh, going in every direction. This is the synagogue in Sardis, the one that you just had there, uh, Ben. And the reason I show it is because it was not your average synagogue. It was elaborate and very detailed. Look at the mosaic floor. uh, And this goes right back to to the synagogue in the days of, of Sardis and the days of John the Apostle. It was beautiful. Two quick comments about the city. Number one, it had an independent spirit. They felt smug in Sardis. I think that'd make a great movie. Sleepless in Seattle. Smug in Sardis. Because they had a lot of resources. And because they built their fortress on the Acropolis. And it was virtually impossible for any army to take them. There was just no way to get up there. It was just impossible to scale. So they, all, they always felt very confident that they were safe. And when invading armies would come, uh, they would just, if they weren't up on the mountain, they'd go up on the mountain, they'd wait them out. It reminds me of Masada. Uh, if you've ever been to Israel and you have seen Masada up close to the Dead Sea, you'll appreciate this fortress. This is a picture of the next one of Masada. Uh, And it was the winter palace for King Herod. Uh, Quite a view from the top. You can go up there by tram and you can scan the area. Pretty hard to get up there if you weren't going by a tram. But the the Romans kind of waited them out for two years to get to the top to capture the mountain. 
and uh, they built a ramp, and it took two years to build it. But in spite of their confidence back in Sardis, the fortress was taken twice in their history. The first time, a soldier on guard was looking over the wall, had a helmet on. His helmet fell off as he looked over the wall, and it fell down the cliff. But the enemy below was watching, and they watched this lone soldier retrieve his helmet. He went out, he went down, and he went through a gate, and they saw him retrieve his helmet, go back up, go through the same gate, and go back to the fortress again. And uh, that night, the army uh, overpowered, found that little pathway up, found that, that gate into the fortress area, and, uh, and they destroyed the town, the city. Uh, so in the course of many years, this uh, story repeated itself twice. Uh, it reminds me of the story I, I heard of a soldier in the army who was on sentry duty, and he was in his box at the gate of the camp, and he fell asleep. And he heard a noise, and when he opened his eyes, he saw the commanding officer was standing in front of him. So with great presence of mind, he closed his eyes again and said, Amen. <laughs> And the commanding officer looked at him and said, good, sir, carry on. So um, in Sardis, they were pretty smug that they could handle anything that came their way. Secondly, they were self-absorbed. Sardis gained a reputation for looking after themselves. Because this was a very wealthy city, they had means to take care of themselves. Sardis was the rich city, and they adapted so well to their prosperity. They looked after number one. And the name of the city was a byword for flabby, luxurious living. They had awesome bathhouses, a superb stadium, a gymnasium built right next door to the bathhouse. Uh, they were well ahead of their time. And uh, the Temple of Artemis also told you something about their moral standards in the city. So they were feeling pretty secure and pretty self-absorbed. And you know how civilizations rise and fall? Uh, there is some of this happening right now uh, with the invasion of Ukraine. We are, uh, if you're like, like us, we are glued to our television sets watching. Uh, this is a bad lesson on bullying uh, on the world stage. And I know we're all praying for Ukraine these days, and I would just urge you to continue to pray. Who knows what God will do? through all of this. Uh, pray for safety for the people and strength and wisdom for uh, the Church of Jesus Christ. Uh, and pray for the president who is being so courageous as, as he leads his people in Ukraine. Pray for pastors and churches and seminaries. But you know, most uh, civilizations do not fall by military attack from without, but rather from moral decay, decay from within. And if you look at the great Aztec culture in, in Central and South America, some of you that have lived there and uh, some of us that have visited know the tremendous architectural wonders that make us scratch our heads and say, how did they ever, ever do that? But civilizations come and go because of moral decay from within. And look at the Roman Empire and look at the British Empire and what brought about the decline. And then we look close to home, and we ask, how are we doing? 
Where are we? Where is the moral crumble within our country? Sardis was known for its wealth. Uh, it was known for all of its temples. There are about 25 temples uh, in the city of uh, Sardis. Uh, and for them, the more the better. Add one more, that's great. Uh, there was no exclusive faith until the Christians came along. They lived in a polytheistic culture. Today we call it pluralism. Even the Jewish people didn't protest the Christians in Sardis. Rome was easy to live with. All the religions were easy to live with. And everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And the Christians didn't seem troubled to be part of this pluralistic culture. So this church is not going through persecution like many of the others. They have learned how to fit in. They've learned how to get along with everybody. They probably didn't quote very loudly what Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That would have caused great concern. So first, the city. Second, the church and the message. Here's what Jesus says to the church at Sardis. And you'll notice that he doesn't have a word of commendation for this church. He starts right off the letter very strongly. He doesn't start with the positive and moved to the concern. He starts with this concern. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. What a strong word. In some ways, the church in Sardis revealed the city, uh, resembled the city itself. It was a it was a very prestigious city, smug-like, somehow reading their own press clippings. They were known for being the best, but a number of factors in their city caused them to slip in importance, but they weren't as good as they thought. And the church had also been reading its own press clippings, and they at one time were a thriving community of Christ followers. Now... Not so much. They were living off their reputation. They were running a parallel track to the city and culture life in general in Sardis. And Jesus put it this way. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. You ever been to a dead church? Sometimes I hear say people, oh, I grew up in a dead church. Or our church used to be dynamic, but now it's dead. What does that mean? I mean, it's not for us to judge if another church is dead or alive, because we could be wrong. We could be wrong. But on the other hand, it's wonderful to be able to say, I love going to church because it's so alive. Well, that's different. I love being fed the Word of God. I love that the church is obedient to the Lord in every way. That's noticeable, that's observable, and that's what I want. 
When we're on vacation, we go, typically go to another church, which is, by the way, also called Southwest, and uh, we always walk out of that church saying, oh, my heart's been refreshed. The pastor is alive. He's vibrant. The people are soaking it in. You can tell their hearts are being touched. There is a friendliness and a love that permeates the body, and you can sense that the Holy Spirit is there in love and in power. A dead church doesn't always look dead. You can't always tell. But Jesus can tell. He knows. Most churches, even dead ones, can look alive on the outside. But it's possible that what looks very alive in our eyes may be dead in the eyes of God. One writer, Chuck Swindoll, put it quite strongly. Quote, a dead church meets regularly to utter prayers, mouth lyrics, collect enough to pay the bills. They may be growing in numbers. They may be buying land and constructing buildings. They may, they have, may have well-staffed programs and all the latest slick technology. Yes, dead churches may have all these things. It's possible, but they're dead. I, don't, I always have this ideal in my mind. I don't know if you, if you process it like this. That to live among the early Christian church must have been the most amazing thing. What could be better than that to experience the life of the first church? And, uh, you know, when you think about that, uh, many times over that would be true. But then again, think about it that these are Christians just like us. And sometimes we soar and we're excited and passionate about God. And then there are times when we are aloof and we're distant and we're looking after ourselves and, and we are cold and we are unresponsive. Remember the old expression about a dead church, many are cold and a few are frozen. Well, it was obvious to Jesus what the state of the church was in Sardis. When somebody dies, you often do an autopsy, especially if they died outside of, of a hospital, to determine the cause of death. And it seems to me that Jesus was doing an autopsy on the church at Sardis, or at least he was diagnosing their spiritual health. In the physical, when your heart stops beating, you're dead. There's no more life. But in the Bible, dead can be another way of saying having a very low quality of life with God and with others in the body of Christ. There's certainly no roaring flame. There's no passion. There's no excitement. Remember Jesus told the story of the prodigal son, and the father in the story is so overjoyed that his wandering son is coming home. And what does he say? He says, bring him the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his fingers and sandals for his, his feet, and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. This son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost and is now found. So the party began. The father said his son was dead, not physically, but spiritually. Is there any greater joy in life than to see somebody who has been kind of dead spiritually come back to life again? and experience the joy and passion and power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes to Sardis, and it's like he is Dr. Jesus. 
And he walks right into the emergency room where he sees all these people who are near to death's door spiritually. And what does he try to do? He tries to breathe life into their hearts. He tries to revive them. He wants to respond to them all. He wants to write a prescription for every one of them. And he does for us. He writes a prescription. And he gives us five things that we need to do to get restored to spiritual vitality. Do you want to hear them? First one is wake up. Wake up. Strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. And I, I picture Jesus kind of doing CPR on the patient. Wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. Or maybe he splashes water. Wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. And he wants us to, 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 to realize where we're at in our journey. I mean, it's easy to go to sleep in our culture. It's really easy to drift off. I'm not suggesting we have to go out and march somewhere or protest. But sometimes there are some things we can do. And, and sometimes we simply need to be awake to the moving of the Spirit. This is more personal than anything else. This is my heart. This is my relationship with God. Distinctiveness as the body of Christ. That's the call of God. So I see that Jesus has Sardis. He's got, he's got Sardis, the church, in his arms. And he's saying, come on, come on. You're, you'll, you're, you can do this. You can make it. You'll be okay. Wake up, wake up, wake up. Let's come alive. Second, strengthen. Wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. Strengthen what remains. In our seminary days, we were placed uh, in a church, how do I say it nicely? Struggling to be alive. And I remember being asked to pray as an intern, like Isaiah is an intern. I was asked to pray uh, because I was, I was on staff as an intern a few, a few hours a week. And apparently my prayer that morning was five minutes and ten seconds long. A parishioner growled to me as he walked out. That was five minutes and ten seconds. <laughs> oh, 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 yeah. I didn't know what to say to him. He timed my prayer. I obviously prayed too long. But within this very church was a renewal movement. People who were amazing, about 15, 20 people who were distinctive followers of Jesus Christ. And they were alive. And they were wise. They were wise. Their hearts were aglow with God. And the Lord called them to be the people in that church who would strengthen this church and encourage the whole body. And their maturity was remarkable. They could have come slamming against them. But they were wise. And they prayed and they came alongside of people and they lived distinctive, God-filled spirit lives. They were marked by love for the whole church and they were like Jesus, holding this church and lovingly saying, wake up, you can do it, we can make it. Sardis was a church that was still doing things. They looked like they were okay, but the truth was they were just doing things for the sake of impressing people. 
Reputation was important. Strengthen yourselves. Look at what you're doing and why you're doing it. Thirdly, remember your first love. Here we are again, back to Ephesus. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it strongly. Go back in your mind and replay the tapes that when you first came to, to know Jesus. Oh, do you remember those days when you first came to know Jesus? Think about the difference he made in your life. I remember it so distinctly, those, those early days of saying yes to Jesus. Think about how God melted your heart. And he took away the blinders so you could see the truth of who Jesus really is. Do you remember your life when you first came to Jesus? It was awesome. What shifted? How in serving did it become a chore? What changed? Time magazine did an interview with Mother Teresa about her work in Calcutta. One of the striking things she said was, we try to pray through our work by doing it with Jesus, for Jesus, and to Jesus. And that helps us put our whole heart and soul into doing it. The dying, the crippled, the mentally ill, the unwanted, the unloved, they are Jesus in disguise. Yeah, what a way to strengthen our spiritual lives. Do it with Jesus. Do it to Jesus. Do it for Jesus. Well, now time to stop. And uh, Jenna's put together some questions uh, for us, uh, and uh, especially for our elementary students who have joined us uh, in worship today. Uh, so, uh, but it's open to anybody. Take your best shot. Here we go. Church of Sardis pop quiz. Question number one. Sardis was originally built, A, in a valley, B, on the sea, C, on an acropolis, or D, in the desert. Okay, which one is it? The correct answer is C, on an acropolis. Question number two. Sardis was located, A, where three rivers intersect, B, where five highways intersect, C, in a quiet, out-of-the-way location, or D, in Rome? <laughs> the correct answer is B, where five highways intersect. They were listening. Question number three. True or false, the city of Sardis was poor. The correct answer is false. The city of Sardis was actually wealthy. Question number four. True or false? The church of Sardis had a reputation of being alive. The correct we gotta answer get that is one. true. Question number five. How does the church lose its aliveness? A, pride. B, self-sufficiency, C, caring for others, or D, losing their first love? The correct answer is A, B, and D, pride, self-sufficiency, and losing uh -huh. their first love. A little trick. Thanks for playing. <laughs> Join us next week. <laughs> so here we go, the prescription. 
wake up. Strengthen yourself. Remember your first love. The fourth one is repent. Jesus says, repent and turn to me again. How do you bring the power and vitality of God back into you, into a church that's dying? Well, it's almost like starting over. It involves going back to the basics, back to what you heard and what you believed at first. How did you come into a relationship with God? One of the first things you said in your heart was, Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me. Lord, I was going down this road, but you touched me and you turned me around. So that's a 180-degree turn. That's what Jesus says needs to happen. Let your heart be broken for where you're at in your life and repent and turn around and go in the opposite direction. Look at yourself and be brutally honest with yourself. He will not reject you. Jesus won't turn you away. He wants to, to, to see that the CPR is working. So your heart's beginning to stir that you're alive and that you'll look at your heart and your attitudes and simply say, Lord, I'm unworthy, but I come. I've been doing my own thing, but I still want you in my life. I need your mercy, and I need your grace, and I need your forgiveness. So he calls us to repent. There's one more thing, the return of Christ. Jesus said, if you don't wake up, I'll come to you suddenly, as unexpected as a thief. And those words of Jesus serve to remind us of the great hope to which the church has been headed since its very beginning. But here is a church that has lost its expectation of Jesus returning for the church. Jesus had already said to his followers in Matthew 24, understand this, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time for the Son of Man will come when least expected. Now, a congregation doesn't need to have a sermon every week on the Lord's return. But regularly, we must reflect that this life is not all there is. There is another chapter. It's not all over when our eyes finally close in death on this side. And one day, Jesus Christ will return. So never retreat from this truth. He's coming soon. Let's keep it foremost in our hearts. Jesus said, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. And when Jesus said that, don't you think they recalled their history? Don't you think they thought about that Acropolis and, and, and the enemy crawling up, scaling the heights, getting in that back door? The fortress that they thought was impregnable? Not just once. But twice in their history, their enemies were able to get up there and conquer them. Just like the city was surprised that the army broke in and invaded this well-protected zone, Jesus says, I'm coming. I'm coming. Don't lose that. Church, don't lose that in, in the busyness of living. I'm coming. I will break in on your life, and I want to find that you're ready. Finally, this morning, the promise. God uses people in our churches who are really faithful to influence the whole church. There are some, Jesus said, who've not soiled their clothes with evil. There's been no compromise. There, is, there has been a distinctiveness about their lives. 
And Jesus is pleased with your heart. He's pleased with that. He's pleased with you, Southwest. He's using your life as you are faithful. Your love and modeling is contagious. It's influential. And maybe God is raising you up for a time just like this. So use your gifts. Use your passion. Seek his direction so he can guide us in the best direction of our lives. And notice the promises that he gives now. There are three. I'll touch on them briefly. Number one, clothed in white. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. The Lord will give you uh, a white robe someday. You say, well, why white? Well, throughout Revelation, we have this message of the multitude of saints who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so the white robes represent the cleansing from sin received by faith in Christ. It's, our, it's now our identity in Christ. What can wash away my sin? The song, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What a thought. We'll stand before the Lord in our white robes, and the color of the robes won't speak anything about us, not of our goodness, not at all. It will speak of what Jesus has done for us. He's cleansed us. He's forgiven us because of his shed blood on the cross. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. Thank you. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. He's saying to the church in Sardis, one day you will walk with me in glory. But right now you're called to walk with me on earth. And I'll give you all that you need to be my representative. Now look at the next one. Security. Here's the promise. Security in the book of life. I will never erase their names from the book of life. Now, when you read that for the first time, that might be troubling because you might say, well, what, what's the implication here? Does Jesus erase names from his book of life? Is there an implication here that he might take my name out? Read carefully. His words are simply assuring us that those who trust him will never be erased from the book of life. He's addressing himself to the fears of those who know Christ because our Lord knows that People have doubts, that people are troubled by the thought of whether they have the assurance of heaven. And this verse is actually translated, I will never, ever, under any circumstances, erase your name from the book of life. You can have that assurance. If you're a believer, if you really know Jesus, if you put your faith in him, you have the life of Christ in you, and he won't one day decide to erase your name. Wow, what a blessed assurance. If anyone says, oh, oh, well, then I'll live like the Dickens. <clears throat> that automatically tells you something about the relationship with Jesus. But if you've come to Christ, you have the forever assurance of being with him and walking with him. And I wonder what it will mean to walk with him in heaven. Because Jesus is a walker, 
And we'll walk with him in heaven one day. And you know how, how creative our God is. Heaven is, is, of course, beyond our greatest imagination of what heaven will be like. And we'll walk with Jesus into all the new things that he has to show us and be part of. Then finally, announcing your arrival. He's going to announce your arrival. But I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Yes, not only are your names in the book of life, but one day he will welcome you home and he will say your name to the Father. I'd never really thought of it before like that. He'll say your name to the Father and to all the angels. Jesus says in Matthew 10, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Funeral service for my cousin, Marva, was held just a week ago on Friday. Marg and I were able to go. Uh, what a gem she was. She was a polio victim. But the only way you knew was that she had special uh, orthopedic shoes. She had crutches as a child, and then she had braces, and then she were, was fitted for these orthopedic shoes. And she would always walk into a church, and even when she was older, and she, if she would see that there was these stairs to climb up, then of course she had to calculate how she could do that without stumbling. But uh, but she never let her physical condition stop her. And she's with him. And Marva and Duane had three children, but they had 28 grandchildren. I'll let you do the math. And... Uh, here they are. These are the grandchildren. These are the grandchildren. Um, and then there's another ten grand, great-grandchildren. They sang this song. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you, to shine upon you and to be gracious and be gracious unto you. The Lord bless you and keep you. You know that new song? What's it called? Bless, the Blessing. Of course. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, to shine upon you and be gracious and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace and give you peace and give you peace and give you peace. Amen and amen. They sang that so many times. It was wonderful. And afterwards I said to Dwayne Marvis, uh, husband, that one of the touching things for me was to see all your grandchildren up in front. And he said, yes, too. It was, it was for me. It was very touching. I, I could hardly keep it together. And then he said, our practice was um, uh, to bless our children every night as they went to bed. And we gave them this blessing. We gave them the numbers six blessing every night. Every night, Lord bless you and keep you. Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And we prayed it over them. And he said, by the grace of God, 
by the goodness of God, by the encouragement of parents. You know, they leave this amazing this amazing legacy. And I don't know these grandchildren at all. I don't know them, but it was for me like an announcement. Being on stage was like an announcement. That these are these are my followers. And Jesus says, I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Can you picture it? Jesus says, hey, let's hear it for Marva. Father, here's Marva. Angels, here's Marva. This is Betty. This is Mary. This is Janine. Father, meet Janine. This is Bill. This is George. Hey, let's welcome them. They're home. He's mine. She's mine. All of her life, she's been a faithful follower. And now she's home. He will be with us forever. Friends, isn't that awesome? Can you hear Jesus? When you stand... Before God, with all of your record exposed, I will look at you and say, you're mine. I will acknowledge your name before the Father and all his angels. And when we hear that, I want to say, oh, Jesus, I am such a sinner. I fail you so much. <laughs> and he will show us his hands and his feet and his side. And he'll say, that's for you. This is for you. Now you're mine forever. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Lord, we love you. Because you first loved us. We love you for your heart. We love you for your compassion. We love you for your forgiveness and grace and for your faithfulness. We love you because each one of us is so valued and so important to you. We're so pleased that one day, by your grace, you will announce us to the Father. And we thank you for showing us your hands and feet, the nail scars, the broken body, the spilled blood. Breathe your life into us again, O oh Lord. Breathe your life into all of us who are here today. Let not one of us go home without the life of God blowing through us. Breathe your hope into us. Breathe your encouragement into us. Breathe your forgiveness and your new beginnings into us. 
Breathe your faithfulness and your obedience into us, all for your glory. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.